Hello, and welcome to the Midnight Myth Time Machine. We're publishing our back catalog week by week to make it available on your favorite podcast platforms. What you're about to hear is episode 17, This is the Girl, which originally aired in May of 2017. In this episode, which coincided with the return of Twin Peaks, Derek and I discuss the work of David Lynch, particularly what we consider his masterpiece, Mulholland Drive. So hop in the time machine with us and enjoy episode 17, This is the Girl. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell this story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. a stage, and all the men and women, merely players, they have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages, at first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy, with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail, unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like a furnace, with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth, and then the justice in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on the nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again toward childish trouble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends the strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, Sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. So as you can tell, this episode, we'll be talking about David Lynch. Okay, Shakespearean sonnet? Is that what that was? That was the Ages of Man speech from As You Like It by William Shakespeare. Okay, I thought I recognized it. All right. Yeah. Um, Okay, we're on. We're on. We started with Shakespeare and... um, And we're talking about David Lynch. I don't know how we go backwards now. (laughs) Welcome. I wanted to share that with you. Yeah, tell me me why that was... Yeah, I want to hear. Yeah, because tonight we're we're not just going to be talking about art. We're going to be talking about the artist. And when it comes to uh, the artist 
and exploring who the artist is in his art, one of the first uh, storytellers who comes to mind, if not the first, is William Shakespeare as kind of the paragon of a great storyteller whose personal life and whose personal growth truly infused their style and, and their work as they matured. And we wanted to bring that to the table tonight in our case study of the artist as they mature and develop through their work. And as you can see the through lines in what they make and bring that case study to our friend David Lynch to celebrate the oh, and I get it the poem the poem is about the different ages of a man yeah I'll come back to it too oh and you'll understand I, I did not get that at all you'll I'm understand. like where are we going um, now I get it yeah see um, I need things spelled out perfectly clear which is why I have a a difficult and tough relationship with David Lynch and his work right because it's never clear what right. you're watching. But and what you're seeing. We're here celebrating the return of Twin Peaks, which should be back very, very soon on Showtime, uh, which is one of my favorite shows. And I know that you have a complicated relationship to Twin Peaks. I do. Um, but we're not going to be focusing too heavily on Twin Peaks tonight. Our major exploration is going to be of David Lynch's masterpiece, Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And just to put some context, who David Lynch is, he is a writer, producer, director of television and film. Um, right. I don't know his full like IMDb biography, but I know that Twin Peaks in the nineties, right, nineties, right, was a like a very very popular, uh, but also frustrated show that had two seasons investigating the death of Laura Palmer, and from there, David Lynch has continued to do work, and I would say in a twin. Peakian vein. Right. Twin Peaks was really a, a, a culmination of his style. And, and we've seen uh, before and after we saw surrealism and absurdism uh, infiltrating the kind of popular culture that he was uh, existing in the world of. And I think to me, trying to put David Lynch's work in, and I'll be transparent, the work that I'm familiar with, Twin Peaks, Lost Highway, and Mulholland Drive, so when I reference right. his work, uh, I know he's done a lot of other stuff that I just haven't seen, but those to me are the big ones. And I think those are probably, most people would say, his most you know, popular, yeah. important whatnot. Yeah, and you can throw in Blue Velvet, but we're not going to talk about Blue Velvet tonight. Because I haven't seen it. Right. <laughs> so that'd be bad to talk about something I haven't seen. <laughs> so um, the reason why I think, you know, when I saw the show Twin Peaks, it was years after I'd seen Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway. Um, I saw it just last year, so 2016. And it's hard to uncouple where we are in the art of making a great television show. And I think Twin Peaks is definitely a show that you kind of had to be there in the time um, because I think it's been eclipsed um, as a revolutionary show as it was then it's no longer revolutionary. And, but when I watched it, the thing that I thought that was the most interesting to me was how I was seeing Mulholland drive being incubated within that show. Right. I was seeing the, the true artist that I think David Lynch is. And I do think, and you know, I don't use that word lightly, but he makes art and twin peaks is a work of art. 
Yeah. You know, I would not take that away from it. It's it's it transcends something I think a little higher than just normal television. Oh, absolutely. You know, even in where I would argue that it fails, it still is doing something very bold and I think is the line to get to Mulholland Drive where I think his mystery style where there isn't a real very linear linear story. Yeah. It's all sort of intertwined in these fantasies and dual realities that, you know, you walk away, you know, sometimes just not really understanding what the fuck it was you just saw. Yeah. And he is informed by folklore. He is informed by, uh, by style that he, that he observes and it incorporates that into his own style. And he is informed by dreams and he creates his own kind of brand of surrealism that we see develop in Twin Peaks and we've seen develop in his earlier films uh, that really comes to a head in Mulholland Drive. Uh, and so I think you, you you had the perfect word as an incubator for Mulholland Drive. And I think it'll be interesting to talk tonight about Mulholland Drive as, uh, as the realization of the style, the realization of the content, the realization of the theme. Uh, but I think the real reason we're getting at this tonight is because we understand on a certain level as people who make art or people who uh, observe art and love art that no artist who who is worth their salt is ever finished with an idea. If an idea really grabs you and really means something to you, you're going to wrestle with it. You're going to have a hard time with it. It's going to be difficult to put it onto paper or to put it onto screen. And even when you do, even when you've put it on stage or screen or on paper, maybe it doesn't feel right yet. And so you'll continue to wrestle it until you get closer and closer. And I think that's what David Lynch does. And it's in the vein of Picasso and it's in the vein of Shakespeare. And I think that's what Mulholland Drive is to Twin Peaks. Yeah. And that's a really, you know, that when you were saying that, the thing that um, was racing through my mind if you've ever listened to any of Beethoven's symphonies, they have a really difficult time ending. He just keeps adding in other endings because he never thought of his work as finished. And so right. how could he put an ending to a symphony when, you know, in his mind, he's constantly reworking it. It doesn't end. And I, uh, and I, that's the, the instant where I went that Beethoven really, really struggled writing endings because how do you end an idea? How do you stop beauty from happening? Um, so, yeah. So let's get into it. Let's get into Mulholland Drive let's a little bit. Let's get into Mulholland Drive. Let's get into the weeds. So, uh, preamble, if you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, we're going to spoil the hell out of it. Um, just a little history about it, which I learned in prepping for this podcast. Mulholland Drive was originally made in 1999 as a made-for-TV movie that uh, was supposed to have then a spin-off TV show. Right. Yeah, it was conceived as a TV pilot. And I'll add to that, uh, the actress Sherilyn Fenn from Twin Peaks, who plays Audrey Horn, has actually said in interviews a couple years ago that it was uh, that David was conceiving it as a spin-off for her character, Audrey, and that that was the intention of it. Now, I don't think Lynch has actually confirmed this, but this is something that she stated publicly. And it was interesting to watch uh, Mulholland drive again and think, Hmm, 
could this have been Audrey in a different version of this script? Right. But yeah, like you said, it was filmed as a TV pilot, essentially, or a made-for-TV yeah. movie, rejected and, by studios. And the networks were like, go fuck yourself. We're not putting another one of your things on TV. Right. So what does David Lynch do is he goes back to the drawing board, and then in 2001 releases it as its own movie, right. which is the movie that we now have. Came out in 2001, um, stars Naomi Watts. Uh, I think this pretty much made her career. Right. That, like, yeah, I don't know if she did a lot before then. She and Laura Herring were highly praised for their performances. They were both excellent in it. Boomerang, originally shot in 1999. That's a familiar year. We've talked about that year before. We have as the year to challenge Pax Americana. Yeah, and the year to challenge you know existing conceptions about the truth and about surfaces. And... Here comes David Lynch with Mulholland Drive. So what's Mulholland Drive? It's a mystery. It starts with a a actress. We don't know an actress, but a woman in a car being driven and uh, someone pulls a gun on her. Her driver pulls a gun. Then there's a horrific car accident. A car slams into it. This woman loses her memory and starts. She's parked on Mulholland Drive. She starts wandering around and she eventually meets the main character, Betty. And, you know, just in describing the plot of this, it's really hard to talk about and describe the plot. Because its relationship to chronology is non-existent. Yeah, there's all of these weird elements. There's this weird conspiracy to supplant and put a new actress in a movie uh, by all of these very odd and very dark agents. There's a scene where there's just a man talking to another man in a diner, which I think is one of the most significant scenes in Winky's diner. Mm -hmm. And in that, the one man is talking about that he sees and he feels from this dream that he's had, this tormentor, this thing behind the wall. And he can see him through the wall and knows that he is the one making me feel like this. Yeah. And as this man then goes, and we never get their names, Right? I don't think, do we? No, we we don't. In the Uh, movie. I I heard Dan. I think Dan is the the guy who dreams. Okay. I'll check on that. Either way, there's two men. As one of them walks behind, there is this like really quick scene where it would appear to be a monster, which it's just like a really filthy, dirty bum, like jumps out and scares the man and he just collapses and has a heart attack. Presumably dies. Right. Um, you know, and it's just kind of in there. There's, there's so many different layers, but essentially this, this young girl, Betty, who is from Ontario, who's bright eyed and bushy tailed ends up staying in her aunt's apartment where the other actress, the woman ends up wandering into and they become friends and then they become lovers. Right. And they're trying to figure out because the woman in the car accident who then we learned, she just takes the name Rita has total amnesia. Yeah, she takes the name Rita from a poster of Rita Hayworth <clears throat> in the bathroom. Right. Sorry, I'm clearing my throat. And um, yeah, and then they're trying to figure this out and who this person is, while at the same time, we, the audience, are seeing the conspiracy. And in them, in their investigation of this, they end up going to this place, Club Silencio. Right. God, I'm skipping over so much. It's all good. <clears throat> We're assuming that anyone who's gotten this far has seen it because, oh gosh, see it before we spoil it. Yeah, pause, pause and see it. But 
you know, David Lynch did this in Lost Highway, where a good portion of the film's sort of main story and chunk, you end up walking away feeling like that was actually almost a false narrative. Right. That Jam-packed with red herrings and misdirections. Yeah, that this character Betty is actually this character Diane having some sort of a drug-induced uh, dream hallucination of Betty and Diane is actually plotting to murder presumably her ex-girlfriend Camilla Camilla who's the also the character Rita and she ends up killing this character Camilla by paying this hitman and in this she kind of goes insane and blows her brains off right and so we'll kind of jump in with our analysis of what is happening if you disagree with our analysis that's okay because there is no right answer here. Well, yeah, the thing that I want to touch on to kick off analysis. Yeah. What David Lynch does the best, I think, and this is my critique of Twin Peaks, is that he does mystery. And when the mysteries are not answered, much like the mysteries that we go through in life, so many of them are going to go unanswered. We won't get to the actual truth of a thing whether that's a great philosophical conundrum or a crime that goes unpunished, you know, and part of the human condition is wrestling with and dealing with unresolved mystery. And when it comes to the analysis of what the fuck is happening in this movie, I think the truth is it should be unresolved. We're not supposed to really know what's real, what's not, what metaphysically in this story is actually happening in tangible reality What's fantasy? Where do they overlap? What are the rules of this universe? There are none of this is supposed to be explained. And to me, the, the best way that I interpret Mulholland Drive is the representation of the unanswered question and watching David Lynch work out the unanswered questions in the symbol in the symbolism of a movie. You know what I think is really interesting? I agree with that 100 percent. I think it's really interesting that that's your critique of Twin Peaks. Well, my, my critique of Twin Peaks is that they answer the fucking mysteries. But what's so interesting about that is, is that David Lynch adamantly never wanted to answer those questions. He wanted to leave Laura Palmer's killer unanswered. He wanted that mystery unsolved. And he was pretty much forced because they were a, you know, a mega hit. People were standing around the water cooler you know, conspiring, wondering who killed Laura Palmer. It swept the nation. It had to be answered because uh, television at this at this time, I mean, still we have these expectations, but at that time it was more and more prominent that you needed to fulfill audiences' expectations and give answers if they were watching cliffhangers every week. But David Lynch never wanted that answered. And I think in many ways, Mulholland Drive is a response to how Twin Peaks was made. And so I think it's very interesting that that was your critique of Twin Peaks, that the mystery was solved. Well, to be fair, I have a laundry list of problems with Twin Peaks, but that's my main one. I Yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um, but I think that's really interesting because I, I will, as I will, you know, illuminate soon, I think that Mulholland Drive, this this film about Hollywood, a movie about movies, is in many ways a uh, a reaction to uh, Lynch, the artist, being uh, pushed into a corner and uh, manipulated by a greater conspiracy, if you will. 
Well, that's a, a, a that's pretty interesting. I didn't really know that about Twin Peaks because it would have been better because it just seems like, oh, their father did it. Boy alert for Twin Peaks. Oh, that oh makes, my God. And you're like, that makes no sense. How how are they going to justify this? They made him possessed by a demon. Wow, this is really breaking down. I really hope that everyone who is listening now has watched Twin Peaks because he really just spoiled it. Eh, you can Wikipedia Twin Peaks. Ugh. I'm kidding. You're trying to get me to pause it. I am, getting I am trying to get you into an He's argument. He's trying to goose me into an argument. <laughs> yeah, We've yeah. had this argument too many times. Yeah, Twin no. Peaks is one of the best shows that has ever been on television. But... uh Backtracking onto onto Mulholland Drive, you know, I, I one of the main aspects of I, I'll say for for just a point of clarity, there's a point where things shift where the character Betty is now Diane, the character Rita is now Camille. Camilla, yeah. I, I think just to to make it easy, we'll call the first part of the movie the false narrative and the other part the true narrative. Right. Whether or not that analysis holds up underwater, will we can examine. But we'll say, where was I going with that? Oh, in the false narrative part, um, one of the major themes is that there's a character, Adam, who's a director, and there's this horrible conspiracy with all of these very bizarre and very dark corporate actors trying to influence this movie, and they want to make this one actress play this part, and they're willing to ruin you know, lives, they're willing to threaten, they're willing to do whatever they have to do to get this person into this role. Because this is the girl. Yeah, and that's the only explanation we get. This is the girl. There's this really great scene where the director in the false narrative is uh, sitting with his manager and a few studio heads, and in come these two guys. And these two guys just pull out a picture and say, you know, this is the girl. One of the guy orders an espresso and they're like, the, uh, the, the studio heads are like, oh, he's going to, let's really hope he likes the espresso. This is one of the greatest espressos in the world. As he sips the espresso, he spits it back, back out to a napkin. And the people that serve them are just so like afraid that, oh my God, we gave him bad espresso. Just showing like the power and, and you know, that these just weird two conspiratorial men hold and all they do is say this is the girl and after that then we go to the scene that's very reminiscent to a scene in Twin Peaks where there's a man in a room that's glassed off Mm -hmm. Uh, this is a man named Mr. Rock and he's sitting there with red curtains like the red curtains of the the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks if you're familiar with it and uh, he just goes shut it down yeah and it's worth noting that the the man, Mr. Rock, is played by the same actor who plays the man from another place, the dancing dwarf from the Red Room in the Black Lodge in Twin Peaks. And there are some other stylistic things that are, uh, are brought in. Uh, there's some patterns of light on the red curtains in this room that look similar to the floor patterns in the Red Room in Twin Peaks. Uh, I couldn't help but point it out um, because I think we see a few stylistic similarities to Twin Peaks in the movie. Um, yeah, you get the sense that the 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 Red Room Club Silencio are very much like the Black Lodge. Right. This other place, this sort of alternate reality, this other dimension that exists. That's inhabited by surreal beings who have and they're you know, dark. strange, dark power over 
over the universe we live in. Yeah. Like imagine all negative emotion and energy coming from this sort of Pandora box dimension. And it just has these few places that open up that kind of where other humans can see, interact and walk into. Right. And that's very much the black lodge in twin peaks. That's very much these few places that we see in Mulholland drive. Right. Uh, so the, the reigning interpretation of Mulholland drive is that the first half of the film uh, where Betty and Rita are kind of Nancy Drewing to figure out who Rita really is and why her accident happened and and what memories she has lost and where she was going, that the first half of the film is a, a dream or a hallucination on the part of Diane, who is uh, Naomi Watts's character, after her um, her sort of alcohol-induced coma slash the moments before she shoots herself from the guilt of uh, ordering the murder of her girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, Camilla. Uh, so this is the reigning interpretation of that. Uh, and so at a second glance, the first half of the film truly reads like a dream. And when you watch it the first time, if you're not expecting that, you don't put those things together. You take it at face value that this is reality. This is the world we live in. And it's David Lynch. So there are some surrealist elements to it like a director going to a corral to meet a cowboy who is explaining to him that he's going to pick this girl to be in his movie. And if he does the wrong thing, he's going to be in lots of trouble. And what, like, what is that? Yeah. And, and there's this club where you can go in the middle of the night and there's, and doesn't the cowboy not just to not, not to cut you off. No, go ahead. Doesn't the cowboy ask him about virtue? Right, the cowboy is like, you know, mm-hmm. do you do you believe in being uh, like a? I I forget what he says. But he says something about how your attitude determines how determines how your life turns out. Yeah, that that you know something like, do do you believe that you know who you are and your attitude will affect your decisions? And the director, who's covered in paint because he caught his wife cheating on the pool guy and tried to cover all of her jewelry with paint and then he got his ass kicked and his credit cards canceled. Right. And he realizes, my God, this conspiracy is unraveling my entire life. And he gets the message, meet the cowboy. And the cowboy, you know, has this weird sort of power, I think, to walk in all of these different realities. And he says to the the director, you know, don't you believe that a man's attitude has something to do with how virtuous he can be? And the, the the director just very flippantly agrees and goes, did you agree just to, to say that you agree? Or did you think about my question? Mm. And I think that's an interesting point where I think David Lynch is talking to us and being like, are you just agreeing with this film? Are you going to stop and think about it? What's your attitude? What are you putting on oh, to this great. movie? Yeah. Right. Like, like I think that the cowboy is very much talking to us as much as he's talking to the director in that yeah. scene. And then, you know, if we're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we agree. He's just like, no, don't be just a smart aleck. Yeah. And go along with this just to go along with it. Because, you know, if you do good, you'll see me once more. If you do bad, you'll see me twice more. This really weird threat yeah. that he makes. But at the same time, he also is part of the conspiracy Right. Because he wants to get the actress switched. So I think David Lynch is talking to us and the uh, and the characters many points in the film. And just to continue what I'm saying about the, the dream, the dream kind of world, we get tipped off really, really fast that that's happening. Because the first thing we see before we go into it is a head hitting a pillow. 
essentially. The camera as the character's head spiraling towards a pillow. Uh, and then we enter this narrative. Um, and when Betty arrives in the hotel, she says something about how she's just stepped out of her you know, old small town life and into this dream place. And she's talking about the city of dreams where you go to fulfill everything you've ever dreamed of, which is the, you know, that's the image of Hollywood. That's Los Angeles. It's a place where dreams come true. And often in the film we're shown, uh, you know, Lynch pulls the rug out from under us and shows us that, nope, this is as ugly as it gets. But what I was saying about this dream, and when you think about any dream you've had, when you try to explain to someone how it happened, do you often try to rationalize certain things just to make it sound more normal? Like, you know, I was going, I was walking to the store instead of, you know, I just was in the store because I was in the store. Because often in a dream, the logic is intuitive, right? You know, like in my dream, I, I just was this other person. The logic is intuitive. In a dream. You're in the dream and you take the given circumstances as they are, right? Despite whether or not they're actually logical. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting phrase that you use. I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't use it. I feel like when you are dreaming, um, you know, many times dreaming to me represents the activity of the mind and the passivity of the self. Right. As a self, I have no control usually, unless I'm having like some type of a lucid dream. Right. But usually, uh, you know, there's no, in, to, to me, there's no intuition. Like in a dream, I can be sitting in a room and I can turn around and I'm in a different time, a different place as a different human. My, my, I might not even be me. And yet, it, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And yet, in that moment, in that dream, that makes total sense. You don't question it. Correct. It's intuitive. Oh, okay. That's what I mean by that. I gotcha. I got, so, okay, it took me a minute to get there. In the second half of you. the film, mm -hmm. when we see Diane wake up, we are suddenly shown what is potentially reality or the reality of this film. And it's very different than what we've seen before. Betty is Diane. And Diane is, you know, a corpse that we saw in the first half of the film. Diane is what we thought might be the name of Rita before. And then we see that the girl we thought was Camilla, or thought it was Rita, is Camilla. And then we see that the Camilla of the dream is someone else entirely. We've seen the parts played by different actors almost. Different characters in Diane's life taking on different roles in her dream. And we question it once we step into reality, but we never questioned it when we were in the dream, did we? And so there's this sort of logic that Lynch gets exactly right about dreaming. And we see, you know, we see when, when she wakes up that blue key. That's a very straightforward key, but it's the right color blue to match the blue key from the strange little box in the first half of the film. And so we link these things together as if we are dreaming because they might as well be the same thing. And we take a lot of this at face value. And Lynch recreates that intuitive dream logic for us in a way that really throws us off our game because we don't expect that in a movie and we don't expect that in our lives, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's a That's a really great point. Yeah. Um, and that we don't question it until we get out of the dream. 
And even when we're out of the dream, too, the story is not linearly told. It's chopped right, it's up. It's tinged with memory and flashback. In pieces, you mm-hmm. know. And hallucination, even. Yeah, there's a moment where we realize when the character Diane awakes from the dream, presumably, uh, we, we see right out of the gate that she's broken. She doesn't look well. Right. She's disheveled. Uh, she hallucinates uh, Camille in her her apartment. Um, you know, we see the blue key, which is to me the so well, well, let's back up a little bit about that. When in the false narrative, in the dream, there's a point where they go into the character Rita Camille's bag and find a buttload of cash, total red herring, never gets explained. We don't know what it's there. And we find a blue, not a traditional house key. It looks like a key, but it's triangular and it's long and it's thin. When we go a little further in the movie, when they're in this place, Club Silencio, which we could do on a whole podcast about what happens in Club right. Silencio. Yeah, that's the next um, thing I want to talk about. Uh, in Club Silencio, the character Betty, who turns out to be Diane, goes into her purse, not Rita's purse, and pulls out this blue box right, with a triangular it just was there all along because yeah. it's a dream yep. because logic doesn't matter. It's and we intuitive. don't question it. And and as the audience, we don't question it because at this point we're steeped in the surrealism. And we just want to know the answer to the mystery so bad that we just want them to open that box. It doesn't matter how it got there. Yeah. And then they go back to the apartment they're living in to get the triangular key that has to fit into that. The character Camille Rita is holding the key and holding the box and the character Betty disappears. Right. Just puffs into smoke. No, no smoke, no literal smoke. Right. Like, she's just not she's there. She's there in one frame. She's not there in the other frame. Rita's like Betty, Betty. Well, I might as well put this key in. And then when she opens it up, the way it's shot, it's almost as if we're seeing it from Rita's perspective and she's being sucked into this black void right. that exists in that box when she opens it. And the next thing we see in that scene is presumably Betty's aunt at this point. We don't really know the apartment that she's staying at, who's supposed to be in aunt Canada. Ruth. Yeah. Aunt Ruth just open up the door like, Oh, did I hear something and close it? And the blue box is gone. Right. Right. And this is where I think to call these two different realities, the dream and the not dream to me is not really connect correct. It's not enough because I I feel like if you're challenging the very notion of what is true, these false realities are as real as the real realities and the real realities are as false exactly. as the dream realities. And exactly. there's, there's sort of this circular thing that David Lynch is doing in Mulholland drive. Yeah. And and to expand on that, I want to take us back to Club Silencio, where... No, I, Banda. Beautiful. Where the ladies enter. Uh, this is Betty, Rita. This is Betty and Rita. They enter uh, this club after Rita has woken up from a dream shouting, Silencio, Silencio. Uh, so they go to this club, and there's a performance already in progress. And there is a... Uh, an MC of sorts, who's kind of this demonic uh, 
it's two in the morning, this demonic character, and he's screaming, no, I, Banda, there is no band. And he says, this is all tape recorded. You can hear music playing in this place. There's a clarinet, there's a trombone, you can hear them. And he says, there's no band. This is all tape recorded. It is all an illusion. And he is speaking directly to Betty and Rita, and he is speaking directly to you and me, the viewer. Mm-hmm. And we hear him, and we, we take it in, and we listen, and we understand what he's saying, and we ignore it. Because what happens next, because Betty and Rita do it too, what happens next is they introduce a singer, and she sings this incredibly moving and emotional version of Crying by Roy Orbison, and she sings it in Spanish. And it's, it's insane. It's, it's so powerful. It's so moving. It's so beautiful. Uh, and you, it pulls in close on her face, and you can see her lips quivering with the emotion. Uh, and Betty and Rita are, are moved to tears by the power of her voice and the performance. And as they're watching, they notice the singer suddenly collapse on the, on the stage, and yet the music continues. The song continues. It's all recorded. It's all recorded. It's all fake. And they just told us that. We were just told that. And yet Betty and Rita both believed for a moment that it was all real. And you and I believed for a moment that it was all real, even though we were warned. And this is the, this is the film. You know, we were warned in the beginning that this is not real. And yet we invested and I think Lynch is experimenting in how far you can get an audience to go and how much you can manipulate an audience before reminding them that none of this is real. And it's the same thing that happens when he you know, shows us the monster from behind the Winkies. You know, how far can I get them to, to invest in something before I completely pull the rug out? Yeah. And I think this brings us really to um, what I was saying before about this being a response to how Twin Peaks was made. Um, whenever you see an artist making, uh, you know, making something that is reflexive, and by that I mean you know, writing about writing or making a painting about painting or making a film about filmmaking, uh, you would be... You would be wrong to not read into that, I think. So by seeing David Lynch, a renowned filmmaker, make a film about Hollywood, you are most definitely seeing some audio autobiographical elements here in that because Twin Peaks, which was in many ways uh, supposed to be a Lynch masterpiece, I know that you don't, you don't feel that way. I feel that it was masterful, but I totally merit a lot of your critiques. I just think it was the the starting point. Right. But I also feel that it had massive potential that it was not able to reach because there was there were outside forces that were not allowing Lynch to make the art that he wanted to make. And so in in many ways I think we see that Lynch is Betty. Uh you know who who is coming to terms with their own responsibility for failure. All right, I'm going to push back a little. Okay. Because if there's a character that I think it's going to be Lynch, in particular in the false narrative, it's Adam the director. Well, it's Adam. Yeah. I, I agree. But I think Adam in the false narrative in the dream is also Betty Diane. 
Because I think in the dream, they all are Betty Diane. Well, so if we're trying to just decompact the logic of the story, sure, totally agree. Right. But if we're trying to understand the autobiographical part of it, to me, you know, Lynch, who, or the character Adam, having to sit there and suffer and have his work suffer and to lose control over who's going to be the star actress to appease these these suits and all of the bad guys, all of these corporate actors are in suits, you know, and that they, they actually are the ones that have power and control over his art. To me, like that to me has to be the autobiographical part. Right? Yeah. I think you're right there too. I think the larger point I'm trying to make is that it, it is all, all of the commentary is autobiographical because it all has to deal with his complex relationship with, uh, with the film industry. Um, and so I think that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I definitely think that's maybe true. maybe maybe Lynch has known a few Bettys. Yeah, really talented actresses who the town chewed up, spit out, and their dreams got crushed and got ruined. So maybe maybe Lynch sees a lot of Bettys in in his his line of work. Yeah, but I I definitely think that you can you can see Lynch in a lot of the characters in this film. Is I think my point there, but the most obvious correlation would be to Adam because. You know, he fancies himself that that director who is uh, who is oppressed by the forces of Hollywood who are trying to uh, govern the art that he's making. Um, yeah, and I think Word. that I think that Mulholland Drive also. I think it it romanticizes and fetishizes. Uh, romanticizes and fetishizes Hollywood in a way that um, allows Lynch to lay his thicker critique on top of it. Um, and I think he does this by expanding on some of the um, stylistic elements that he had exercised in Twin Peaks, like um, the like full exploration of soap opera style and melodrama. Um, because Twin Peaks is is almost unbearable in its in its, its sincerity towards the uh yeah it cuz it's not it's not satirical of soap opera like it it goes so far in the satire of of soap opera that it goes back into soap opera and melodrama yeah i and i yeah. think and i think that that's something that he explores in Mulholland Drive too I, with the love scenes and the Nancy Drewishness and the bright eyed bushy tail. Yeah. I think there's an easier explanation for that, that there's just a better cast in Mulholland Drive than there was in Twin Peaks. Okay. Um, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, to pick a fight. You know, I just, when you look at and watch Twin Peaks, you know, I can name three or four people that I'm like, that didn't really get a job again because they were just not very good at acting. Okay. But I think what I'm trying to say is that a lot of the stylistic choices are extremely purposeful. Uh, and I think that Lynch continues to explore, and I think definitely more successfully does this in Mulholland Drive, uh, makes that really, really like headlong run towards the melodrama um, to explore that style without irony, almost. Um, and so I think that's an element that we see mature from Twin Peaks. Um, and I think there's some other themes that he plays with too. Obviously we see his explorations of dreams mature uh, from Twin Peaks and, and and become more more intuitive in the way that I was talking about before. 
Can we uh, back up for a second to the autobiographical thing? Yeah. And talk about the absolute buffoon director in Betty's audition. Oh my God. What a dope. One of the best scenes uh, in the whole movie is the character Betty who wants to be an actress. Her aunt apparently has some like juice in Hollywood, sets her up for an audition and she goes into this audition and it's really just David Lynch, like dry, uh, really awkward, really over the top scene. Um, and one of the characters in that is the director. The director is supposed to give them notes and the director is just an absolute spitting, like pseudo intellectual garbage. Like don't wait for the scene. Let the scene become you. Yeah. It's so stupid. And it's so like, it's such an excellent critique too. Yeah. On that form. Yeah. Um, And in it, then we see then the character Betty have just this killer audition in this really terrible movie Yeah, that like the lines are so bad, but we see her as an actress, like really transform and make it something that it wasn't originally supposed to be. Right. And I think this is important too for a minute we buy into stuff and we start to see the audition. We start to see elements of the audition as real. Yep. We start to believe that, you know, maybe this, this man that she's auditioning with, and they have this like really like steamy, like sexual this tension fight. Chemistry. Yeah. And the, the man that she's auditioning with has a Donald Trump style tan. Yeah. So he's orange. Yeah. He's old. And Naomi Watts is young and is beautiful and he's like groping her. Yeah. And instead of, of taking, you know, a hard left, she just, she kind of swerves with the swerve. She goes hard in the direction that he's going in the same way that I think Lynch just turns in the direction of the swerve when it comes to melodrama. And that's something that I appreciate. Um, there's one other, uh, there's a couple other things, you know, that uh, stylistically and thematically that Lynch likes to, um, likes to continue to evolve. Uh, we talked about the themes of like doubles a little bit. Uh, if, if you look at Twin Peaks, you see Maddie and Laura contrasted as the same actress playing two different characters, um, living in the same space, sharing the same people, uh, but with different hair colors. And the uh, the tension that comes along with that, and then we see that again in Mulholland Drive when you see Rita and Betty um, after after they discovered the corpse of Diane in the you know the false narrative. Um, Rita cuts her hair, and Betty gives her a blonde wig, and they start to look really similar. Um, and so they kind of become these doubles of each other. And then we learn later that there are infinite other doubles and pairings in this. Uh, this film universe that we found. Yeah, where um, every character has a, another character that they're also playing. Yeah, that plays them. Yeah. Um, but there was another thing we were talking about um, when it comes to Mulholland Drive, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying that I think Mulholland Drive, it, it's not a horror movie, but it is the scariest movie I've ever seen. Like, I couldn't sleep after rewatching it. Like, it just terrifies me to the core. And part of that is that there is a really extremely scary monster. And... Um, part of that is just because there is an existential dread that lies at the core of it. Um, but what I wanted to say, I wanted to talk about Bob from Twin Peaks and how we see Bob reiterated in Mulholland Drive. 
And so go for it. Yeah. So we were talking about this the other night, but um, if you've seen Twin Peaks, obviously you, you know Bob, who is the scraggly, long-haired, demonic spirit uh, from the woods of Twin Peaks, who inhabits uh, the bodies of some of the townspeople and commits horrible crimes in doing so. And so yeah. he's sort of from a spirit world. Sometimes he's depicted as an owl, so he really is kind of a, a an ancient spirit of this forest who manipulates the the people and creatures of Twin Peaks. Uh, and he's terrifying. Um, he scares the shit out of me. And there's something there's something to Bob that it's almost too obvious for Lynch, but he he in many ways represents you know some real darkness in in human souls that you know you can touch a part of you that's so dark that you can do the unthinkable. Um, and he's this manipulating force that can can be scapegoated, but what it really awakens is the the terror of that part of you that can do such terrible things. And I think we see Bob again in Mulholland Drive, depicted another way, but I think that same force is there. And when mm. you see the, the scene at the Winkies with Dan and Herb, Dan and Herb are their names, when Dan is describing his dream of this Winkies, this diner on Sunset Boulevard, and how he sees this man, he can see him through the wall, a face I never want to see outside of a dream, and he feels this dread and this terror and he can't explain it, but then he realizes this man is what's causing it. And then they go outside and they see this man. Uh, and it's just this, you know, dirty bum behind the Winkies who is kind of this personification of the broken dreams of the city of dreams. Um, but also potentially of the the darkness in in the soul of someone who who can sometimes be bathed in light like Betty, uh, but has such darkness in her soul that she can destroy a person. Yeah. It's really scary. I I feel like, you know, we have to sort of compartmentalize Twin Peaks, Bob, in season one and season two. In season one, Bob is sort of like this, this, this just force, this thing that's there. It's in the Leland house. It shows up in the dream uh, season two, he gets like a concrete narrative of what he is. Right. You know, and I feel like season one, Bob is very much like the, the monster in, in, um, Mulholland drive. You know, we don't know if at all, whatever relationship this monster has to any of the events, whether in the dream false narrative or the true non-dream narrative, we really don't know, but we do know is that the monster is in both. Right. Right. So the monster exists in the dream when we first see him. And then the monster then shows up again at the end holding the blue box. Right. You know, so we know that the monster has sort of this ability to exist, logically speaking, kind of in both of this dream and not dream. And out of the blue box at the very end come these two characters from the beginning of the movie that you think are totally inconsequential. They're just this weird, super extra friendly old couple that were traveling with Betty to Los Angeles, that they had this friendship. They come back as tormentors and they come back very, very small and sneak in out of the blue box, sneaking into Betty's uh, now Diane's house and torment her 
in a very terrifying scene that ultimately culminates with Diane taking a pistol and killing herself. To me, that's out of the blue box, out of the dream come these two characters. And literally out of the woodwork. Back to back to the real. Yeah. You know, that the idea that this false narrative is not a false narrative, even if it never quote unquote happened. Yeah. Right. It's still real and it's still real to Diane. And then from that dream come these two old people as tormentors unleashed by the monster. So you, you know, you get the sense that the monster I, I feel like is somehow part of writing the wrong that Diane does by killing Camille, you know, by getting that, that these, these two old people, I, like I said, I read an interpretation online that I thought was kind of cool. The old people represent the super ego. And if you're not familiar with psychoanalysis and Freud, the idea is that your consciousness has three layers, your unconscious or subconscious self, the id, all of your basic, more animal instincts, your conscious mind or your ego, and another layer of unconscious mind, which is your super ego, which are the morals and values that you've learned and collected that are constantly telling you right and wrong. And we're in this delicate balance between those three. Well, if Diane's id took too much control and she satisfied those impulses to kill, then the super ego needs to suppress the id back down represented in these tormentors being like, no, we have to suppress, which I thought was a pretty interesting interpretation. Right, right. And there's a lot of ways to interpret the, the entire false narrative or dream as, uh, you know, Diane's last moments where she, uh, you know, recontextualizes the the horrible thing that she's done, assuages her guilt by creating this, you know, this story and also makes herself feel better about her own failure as an actress by telling herself that there's this conspiracy out there to get some other girl cast arbitrarily. Um, and that's why, even though she's incredibly talented, she can't get a part. But you can't escape the monster. You cannot escape the monster. And because at the bottom of the, the city of dreams, there is always the, you know, the ugliness lurking below the surface. Yeah. Game. I want to I wrap it up by explaining why I was quoting Shakespeare in the beginning. Um, Go for it. And that's that I, you know, I don't want to say Lynch is a modern day Shakespeare because, you know, that's a, that's a very uh, exaggerated thing to say. But I do yeah, think that... Lynch is cool. I do think that Lynch is, um, is a great artist. I, I truly do. And I can't wait to see the next season of Twin Peaks. Um, but I think that doing a case study of Lynch in, uh, in the exploration of how an artist evolves and how their inner life comes to, uh, comes to a head in their work, especially when so much of their work is really in the public eye as they grow and mature as an artist. I think the, the first person that I think of as an example of that is Shakespeare. And the reason I quoted the seven ages of man, uh, the speech from as you like it is because I think it, it lays a blueprint for what comes next in Shakespeare's work, in Hamlet, in Macbeth, in King Lear, and in The Tempest, which I think in many ways are Shakespeare working out the same themes of life and mortality and the life of man and uh, you know childhood, adulthood, uh, old age, and you know a dream world. And I think that Lynch takes a lot of 
cues from the ability to work those ideas out, even in the public eye, and still create beautiful art while he's doing it. Even if it's terrifying and even if it you lose sleep. It's so <laughs> fucking scary. Don't, oh, you don't, just dropped an F-bomb on the podcast. Don't watch Mulholland Drive alone, you guys. Yeah, don't do it. it. It is a really, really fucked up movie. It's so scary. It's and it's dark and it's sad. Yeah, and it is it it you know and I think we as humans we have these feelings, and these movies to me always represent a way to not only challenge me intellectually to think about the the art of the movie in a different way, uh, which then helps me grow and mature as an intellectual human being, uh, but they also to me are incredibly cathartic in the darker emotions. Right. You know, because every human being has a little bit of Bob in them, as you mentioned, right? Every human being has the capacity to do great, but terrible things. Yeah. And I think these movies that speak to those parts of you help you understand that and hopefully gain control over, over that so that you can become a better not terrible, not awful human. The human condition, man. It's something else. You know, it's almost like, you know, the act of Diane, you know, her 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 madness, her love, jealousy, uh, and her desire to murder, you know, to satisfy that love, jealousy, created this alternate reality. Yeah. And this alternate reality, uh, you know, whether that's in her mind or whether that's an actual reality that opened up reminds us that all of our decisions will reverberate in a 360 degree way in both the literal, the metaphysical, the psychological, the spiritual. Yeah. And no decision is made in a vacuum. And when you choose to indulge your darker impulses, uh, just remember there might be a monster around the corner with a blue box. Yeah. And his name is the doctor. Let's play a game. Woohoo! Game. Do your thing, Laurel. Yeah, so every week on the Midnight Myth Podcast, when shit gets real and terrifying and you think you're going to have nightmares, we like to play a little game to have some fun with the characters we've been talking about and the situations. Um, And this week, we didn't want to talk about monsters or uh, scary demonic spirits, um, but we would love for you to play along at home. So please tweet us your responses at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, search the Midnight Myth podcast on Facebook, or drop us a line on the website, www.midnightmyth.com. So no scary monsters, no demonic spirits who possess you, but why don't you hit me with the game, Mr. Jones? All right, the game's pretty simple here. In any major Hollywood genre, if you could sort of pause the life that you have and enter into a Hollywood life, what Hollywood genre would you be? For example... You could choose a Western and you could go and be like, I'm going to be a cowboy in a Western. And there's not room. This town's not big enough for the both of us. Well well done. Cowgirl. Yep. (laughs) Well done. So that's it. What Hollywood genre would you like to live in and why? I'll go first. Go first. Ladies Uh, first. You probably know what I'm going to choose, but I'm going with a, uh, a classic musical. I'm going with a classic Hollywood, like MGM, Busby Berkeley, like singing in the rain, 1950s. Fred Astaire. Ginger Rogers. Bean Crosby. Yep. Musical. Musical. Yeah. I'm super into it because 
You know, it, if life gets tough, just work it out in a song. You know, if, if you get scared about the scary monster who's lurking around the corner, just sing about it and tap dance. And if you're having trouble figuring out how to make a decision in, in your real life, if something is really tormenting you and you don't know what to do, just go to sleep and have a dream ballet. And the dream ballet will work out everything for you. It's so easy. Life would just be fantastic if I were in a musical. Cool. Comic book. Damn. Duh. Why? Because uh, in only one genre of film do I have a chance of meeting both Spider-Man and Batman. In in this version, are you a superhero as well, or are you oh, just yeah. a regular person? Oh, yeah. If I'm going to be in the comic book that's genre, definitely I'm going to be a superhero. Yeah, yeah, you would have to make sure the genie that you're talking to would give you that option, because if you were manifest as just a regular guy in a comic book movie, you'd probably die in the collateral damage. Well, but, you know, in the musical, you still have that same dilemma. If yeah, you're I not, might just be in the chorus. Not, yeah. Or... or you might be an extra that's not even in the chorus. <laughs> I might so, not be a romantic lead. Yeah. So, you know, you, I, I think that dilemma exists. So yeah, yeah I would want right. I'd want to be a, a superhero and I'd want to fight evil with my, my sense of, you know, moral justice based upon Aww. a wrong that I had felt. And uh, then I would go out there and I'd correct that wrong for with vigilante justice when all hope fails and we feel that humanity is on a thread about to be, you know, eviscerated by evil robots or something. There I am standing for truth and justice. Oh, yeah, that's really nice. Definitely. Yeah. You would also have like a really like tongue in cheek partnership with the local uh, police, too, because, you know, they'd always be like, Derek, we want you to do it by the book. And you'd be like, I'm going to try because I'm a good man, but. What's most important to me is saving the town. No. <laughs> no. No. I, I, that would not be me. Okay. No, that would not be me. I, I appreciate you add, adding that tack on at the end. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I would let the, you know, I would, I would go for the things that the cops can't handle. That's like, good. Like Ultron or Lex Luthor, you yeah. know, things like that. that. That's the things that I would, yeah. I would fight. Only yeah. like the high concept stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Like when, when no, you need no the kittens Avengers. in trees for you. No, no kittens in trees, you know? And honestly, people hold on to your freaking kittens. Yeah. Don't let your kittens go up trees. Don't let them get. In, and honestly, PSA. Oh, if, if a kitten gets in a tree, it's probably okay. <laughs> I mean, they have claws. They've been climbing trees for thousands of years. This took a turn. It, so, you know, if the kitten gets in the tree, don't fucking call me. I got super villains to, to fight. The Midnight Myth podcast for all your kitten care advice well anyway i think uh good episode until next time be kind be kind